Take your Bibles, if you would, and look at Luke's Gospel, but look first at Luke 24, Luke chapter 24, before we get back to that great section that we've been studying. In Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 25, Jesus, of course, was speaking to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus rebuked a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus because They had read the Old Testament over and over again. They should have understood the messianic implications. They should have understood the pointers in the Old Testament. They should have made the connections, Jesus says, to his earthly ministry, his coming, his work, his message, his power, his displays, miracles. They should have drawn the lines between the Old Testament emphasis the pointers from the Old Testament, and this person, Jesus of Nazareth. Instead, so many of them had taken offense at him. And that's really what Luke is doing in this wonderful section we've been in in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel. He is addressing the issue of those who take offense at the person of Jesus. Those who listen to his message, and see the Gospels record through eyewitness testimony his power, and they take offense at it. Michael Radelnik was a young man who grew up in a Jewish home, and he writes his testimony with these words. My parents were Holocaust survivors who raised me in a traditional Jewish home. We were orthodox in our Jewish beliefs and practices, and as such... I did believe in the future coming of a personal Messiah. He got it. Even so, it was not a central issue of my life. However, that changed when my mother announced that she believed in Jesus. And this led to my father divorcing her, and it led to a radical shift in my life. His mother believed in Jesus. His father took offense at Jesus. I decided, he said, to study the messianic prophecies of the Hebrew Bible and prove my mother wrong in attributing their fulfillment to Jesus of Nazareth. Although I was initially quite confident in my opinion, in time, I was surprised. Surprised to see that there was a far more, far more credibility to the messiahship of Jesus than I had ever anticipated. And after dealing with my fears of ostracism from the Jewish community, in other words, an offense, based on my new conviction that the scriptures foretold a suffering Messiah who would be rejected by his own people and provide forgiveness through his death and resurrection, I put my trust in Jesus as Messiah and Lord. He then says in this little personal anecdote, 
Apart from messianic prediction and fulfillment, Jesus could not be identified as the Messiah of Israel. And if not that, then he could not be the Messiah of the world. It's true. This is the central issue. And in the ministry and life of Jesus, it kept getting pressed. And Luke, in chapter 7, continues to record these events and put forth what Jesus would ultimately say in verse 23 of chapter 7. Look at Luke 7, 23. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This section of Luke's account of the life of Jesus focuses on those who take an offense at Jesus. They take the offense because they don't like his message. They don't like the Old Testament prophecy being applied to him. They don't like the idea that he said he was the Messiah, the Son of God. They don't like the claims that he made, let alone the demands he preached for anyone who would follow him. Jesus often warned the crowds, and he would urge them to carefully consider his works and his claims. Remember, in John's Gospel, chapter 10, listen to verses 37 and 38. Jesus said, if I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Now, there's a pretty simple test. If I don't do the works of my heavenly Father, that is to say, miraculous power of of a kind that has never before been seen, power over nature, power over disease, power over death, power over demons. If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But, he said, if I do them, Though you don't believe me personally, then believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father's in me and I in the Father. In other words, when you see the power, make the connection to the claim. Forget about me personally and what you don't like about me personally. Forget about the personal offense for a moment and just respond to the sheer power of the displays, and you'll know and understand that those have to be the works of God, and therefore that I have to be telling the truth with these claims. That's why he rebuked the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Slow of heart to believe. You're foolish men. You take an offense at what the prophets have spoken because it becomes obvious to you that I'm the connection I'm the proof. I am the one. Later on in Luke 24, 44 and following, he said to them these things. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying that to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. Now listen, beloved, let's not forget that there are over 300 and 30 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, and all of them, specific and general, converge in the person of Jesus the Nazarene. The entire Old Testament is a messianic emphasis. The Messiah to come, the one sent for Israel's salvation. That's the driving storyline of the Old Testament. That's the plot. That's the promised 
end times culmination. And so by the time history reached the intertestamental period, that is to say when the last prophet left Israel and there were 400 silent years before John the Baptist came on the scene, during that 400-year period, there was speculation about when the Messiah would come. They understood the Old Testament was a messianic driving plot. They understood that. There was one to come. And, and in the New Testament era, as John the Baptist came on the scene, that same expectation was there. All the way through the Second Temple period, during that 400 years, there was speculation, generation after generation. They were always wondering, is the promised one going to come soon? They read their Old Testament as a messianic promise. He was promised in the Torah, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. He was promised in all that the prophets revealed. He was promised also in all the writings. He was the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22, fulfilled in Galatians 3. He was the seed of David, Psalm 132, fulfilled, Acts 13. He was of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, fulfilled, Hebrews 7. His birth was foretold. Isaiah 7, 14, born of a virgin. Matthew 1 indicates that's exactly what happened. He was born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2, the prophet said. That was fulfilled. Matthew 2, verse 1. Kings would come visit him. Psalm 72, fulfilled. Matthew 2. Innocent children would be slaughtered by an evil, jealous king. Jeremiah 31 said that in verse 15. And in Matthew 2, that's exactly what happened. His ministry would be preceded by a forerunner, Isaiah 40 says. Matthew 3, that's exactly what happened. He would have a special anointing by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 45, that's exactly what happened. His ministry would begin in Galilee, Isaiah 9, that's what happened. He would later enter Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion. Zechariah 9, verse 9 said that. Matthew 21 speaks of the fulfillment. He would have passion and zeal for the holiness of his heavenly Father. And it would be extraordinary. Psalm 69 prophesied that. In John 2, that's exactly what happened. He would teach in parables. Psalm 78, that's exactly what happened. He would do miracles. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Precisely what happened. He would be rejected by his brethren. Psalm 69. He would be a stone of stumbling to the Jews and an offense to the rebellious. Isaiah 8. Hated without a cause, Isaiah 49. Rejected by rulers, Psalm 118. Betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9. That was fulfilled. John 13, verse 18. Judas went out to betray him, his own friend. He would be forsaken by the disciples, Zechariah 13 said. Sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11 said. The price given for a potter's field, Zechariah 11, verse 13. He would be spit on, Isaiah 50. Mocked, Psalm 22. Beaten, Isaiah 50, verse 6. And on it goes. They had an expectation. This person, Jesus, has to be dealt with. You either take an offense at him or you don't. But you cannot deny that the Old Testament had a messianic emphasis and all of it was converging in this person. You can't ignore that. You can take an offense at it, or you can believe it, but you can't ignore it. There's just no way. Now, in Luke 7, we find this wonderful test 
given by John the Baptist to his disciples to bring a message to Jesus. Notice verse 18 of Luke 7. Let's just kind of walk through the narrative and see what happens. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. What are the these things? Notice the raising of the dead that we just looked at in the earlier portion of chapter 7, and then all of these miracles that are happening, healings, etc. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Luke is getting very specific for the sake of the the testimony, the witness. He repeats it. And at that very time, literally that very hour, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So let's just sort of unpack the text a little bit and and see where it takes us. First of all, you notice here the expectation of this promise. The expectation of the promise. This is John's messianic hope. And his disciples anticipated this same hope. Notice verse 18, they reported to him about all these things. So many of John's disciples had already switched their allegiance to Jesus. We saw that in John chapter 1. In John's gospel chapter 1, many of them followed Jesus because John the Baptist said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it says there in verse Uh, 35 to 37, that many of John's disciples began to follow Jesus. So there's a good group of them, maybe even most of them, had already begun to shift their allegiance to this person and away from John's baptism ministry, but not all. Some were still following their great prophet. They had followed in his baptism of repentance and they weren't leaving him right yet. They had continued with him in his ministry of preaching and baptizing, and he needed help. There were large crowds coming out, and so he was proclaiming, and he was baptizing, and they were there to help out. So he had some disciples who were part of the preaching and baptizing ministry still. And one day when Jesus was baptizing in the same area as their prophet, according to John chapter 3, they notified John that, listen, all are coming to Jesus And they heard John at that point say, I must decrease and he must increase, right? So again, John is still beginning to point to this person because the disciples were anticipating a Messiah. They'd heard him thunder a sermon at King Herod for living in adultery. And now they'd been witness to the fact that John was locked up in a dungeon for preaching that message. And by now they were regularly visiting him. He was on the east end of the Dead Sea up in the mountain area at the palace of Machiris. He was held there and they would come back into the Galilean area and watch miracles and listen to Jesus preach. And then they'd go south of Jericho down to the Dead Sea up to the eastern slopes there uh, and they would go visit him in prison. They'd They'd be reporting to him and that's precisely what's happening here. 
They were keeping him updated on what was happening between the leaders of Israel and of Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because they anticipated a Messiah. They were looking for some final confirmation that their prophet, John, had in fact prepared the way. That's what they wanted to know. And John the Baptist anticipated the Messiah. Notice verse 18. He sent two of his disciples with this message, are you that one? Literally, are you the coming one? Or shall we look for someone else? Matthew's gospel records that when the disciples heard or watched the works and they came back and reported the works, there's that idea of the miraculous uh, power displayed When they saw the works, they came back to John in prison up on the eastern slopes of the Dead Sea and said, listen, this guy, your cousin, the one you say we should follow, here's what he's doing. And so John the Baptist hears of the works of Christ and he sent word by his disciples because the works of Christ are the central issue. If Jesus couldn't do the works that the Old Testament promised that Messiah could and would do, then he is not the expected one. Now, we need to deal with John's question because immediately when you read this, you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, did he lose faith here? John the Baptist having serious doubts here? This is John the Baptist. I thought John knew that he was the forerunner. I thought he understood that this was his cousin who was the sent one. I thought John was a prophet who was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. All of that's true. So when you read this question that he sends, you you begin to wonder, didn't John already point Jesus out to the crowds and say, hey, there's the Lamb of God, follow him? Didn't John already tell his disciples to say, uh, tell his disciples Jesus' reputation and ministry must increase and I must fade off the scene? So why is John sending two disciples to Jesus with a question like this? Doesn't he know he's the forerunner? Doesn't he believe? Is he losing assurance? Is he not trusting in God's character? Well, there's certainly an official delegation sent by the prophet. That's true. It's an official delegation sent with an official message. And that prophet, John the Baptist, though he's in prison, is still holding to his official ministry purpose of preparing the way for the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. He hasn't stopped that ministry because he keeps disciples going out to look at Jesus' ministry to find out if he's the real one. And the two disciples are dispatched with this specific question that gets the heart to the heart of the Messiah's identity. It's a question that demands credible evidence for confirmation. So, is this a serious doubt within John the Baptist about the identity of Jesus? Well, most commentators would say so, or many that I read. There is another view that that a few commentators might lean toward, and that is the idea that John was merely making a final affirmation because he's about to fade off the scene, and he wants to know if he's fulfilled his mission. The text doesn't necessarily demand one conclusion over the other, It could be that John's question indicates, in some sense, a little of both reasons. First, if John is dealing with doubts, we can certainly understand why, okay? Here's what was prophesied, Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17, that Israel would repent. John the Baptist would come, he'd prepare the way to turn Israel and the Father's hearts back toward God. 
What was actually occurring? Matthew 17, Israel was rejecting. By the time John's in prison, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of Israel are already questioning the authority of Jesus. They're already saying, you're not who you say you are. We don't believe it. So if Israel is rejecting, yet the prophecy was that John the Baptist's ministry would prepare the way for them to turn their hearts to him, then he's got a real dilemma in his mind. Furthermore, here's what John preached. In Luke chapter 3, 16 and 17, you remember what he said? That this one who's coming, whose sandal I'm not fit or worthy to untie, this one who's coming is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, grace and judgment. He's going to bring grace to the sinner who's humble and repents, and he's going to lay the, the axe at the root of the tree and bring judgment to those who don't believe him. That was what he was preaching. But what was actually happening? Jesus' ministry was all about forgiveness. There was no judgment happening yet. And so John the Baptist is looking at this and he's saying, wait a minute. I preach that I'm preparing the way for Israel to repent. Israel's not repenting. I preach the judgment is coming as well as grace, but all I see is grace. Something is askew here in his mind, potentially. Do you know what John expected? Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is expecting a kingdom soon. And the signs of the preparation of that kingdom, he's expecting the exaltation of Christ on his throne. And yet there was a mystery, wasn't there? It is true that Jesus Christ would enter into his glory. It is true that he would set up a kingdom. But John the Baptist had no idea that there was something not revealed in the Old Testament anticipation of the Messiah and it was a period of time where God was going to reach out in grace to Gentile nations and so far how many years have gone by as he's been reaching out to Gentile nations 2,000 plus John the Baptist had no idea of this wonderful mystery which Paul describes in Ephesians 3 even the disciples after the resurrection said to Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, is it now that you're going to be setting up your kingdom and restoring righteousness on the earth? Is it right now? And he said, look, the Father has fixed those times in his sovereignty. It's not for you to know the exact times of such things that are ordained by the Father. So everyone was sort of wondering, what is this period of time where Jesus has been rejected, yet he's been raised from the dead, and... And now there's going to be a period of time for grace to explode over the globe? That's right. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Samaria to the outward regions all the way to the remotest part of the earth. John the Baptist didn't know that. So we can hardly call John's doubt here a serious lack of faith in Christ. I mean, he sent the delegation to Jesus. That means he, he's still looking to Jesus for an answer. This is a serious moment. Notice verse 20. When the men came, they asked, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask. So here Luke is recording the formality of it. This is a serious formality. They delivered the question exactly as John had instructed them to deliver. And I can see him through the prison bars saying to them, look, don't get this wrong. Get this question right. Because I need a clear answer from this Cousin of mine, I need a clear answer. Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? By the way, that is 
in, for, you, for you grammar students, that is a verb of duration. Here's how it would be translated. Or should we keep on expecting someone else? So John the Baptist hasn't lost his faith in a Messiah. What he's trying to say is, are you the one to whom all these prophecies connect? Or should we keep anticipating the arrival of another? John wasn't doubting the ultimate plan of God. He's simply wanting it verified by Jesus that either he was indeed the one through whom judgment in the kingdom would ultimately come, or there would be another person sent by God who would be the final fulfillment of those things he hadn't yet been seeing. Moreover, John is in prison, and it is brutal, and he knows he's about to die, and he wants to know if he's accomplished what God had called him to do by pointing to this person. I mean, he sent a bunch of disciples to this guy. Are you the one? I know you're a man of God. I know you're God's servant. I know you do all these wonderful, miraculous things, but are you the one connected to the prophecies? That's what I want to know. So I believe John's doubt is part fear of being mistaken. It's part ignorance of God's timing. And it is part desire to faithfully accomplish his own prophetic mission before his life is cut short. And even 1 Peter 1, Peter indicates that even the Old Testament prophets were in the habit of carefully researching their own prophecies to know when and how these things would come to pass. That's all John's doing. He's just like a prophet of the Old Testament. He sees the prophecies and he's just carefully researching and yes, he's wondering about these circumstances and, and judgment not being here yet. I mean, he wants a confirmation on every single level. And he's in prison, about to get his head lopped off, and he knows it. He's expecting a Messiah. So you go from the expectation of the promise to the demonstration of the power. Notice this, verse 21. This is absolutely shocking. At that very hour. Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. Okay, get the progression here. We just finished in verses 11 to 17, where Jesus walks up to the town of Nain, and as he's walking into the town, a funeral is coming out, and the two massive crowds met one another so that God providentially put this huge crowd to spread the word of this all over the land, and Jesus walks up to the mother and says, stop weeping. He touches the funeral procession. (gasps) Defilement. The whole thing comes to a halt, and he says, get up, child. And the son gets up and begins speaking and he gives him back to his mother, resurrection. And that report, verse 17, concerning Jesus went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. By the way, the word report in verse 17 is halagos, the word of his miracles in total. Not just the report about the resurrection at Nain, but the resurrection along with all the other report. It's, it's a different way that Luke describes it. This word, this word of his power in all of these ways went out into the districts. And then verse 18, the disciples then reported specifically about all of these things to John. What is he saying? The disciples are coming and saying, oh, he raised the dead. Oh, he's healing diseases. Oh, he's doing all these things. And then what does God do providentially? In that very hour, they ask the question. I mean, think about that. The disciples walk up, and they're waiting for a moment, and they split the crowd. Hey, we're from John the Baptist, and we want to know, are you the expected one? This is his question to you. 
in that very hour, that is to say, as they're watching, then right during the time they give the question, and as they are waiting for an answer, Jesus is healing, and he's curing, and he's restoring right there during their question in the sovereign plan of God. And I just see this as such a tender moment from God for John the Baptist. He's in prison. He's struggling. Did I do a faithful job in my ministry? Have I pointed to the wrong one? Why is judgment not here? I know this guy is full of grace and the power of God, but is he the connection with the messianic prophecies that are on my mind and have been in my heart? Lo, these many years in the desert. And God says, here's how I'm going to answer my great prophet. Don't worry, I know you're in prison. But know this, just when your disciples walk up to Jesus, I'm going to manifest specific prophetic fulfillments right there. Right in front of them. As part of my answer. He just happened to be finished raising a boy from the dead. Just happened to have just raised someone from the dead. And he just happened to be granting sight to the blind. Notice the end of verse 21. He gave sight to many who were blind. It is the word for he graced them with favor. So he saw blind people and as, as the grace of God was favoring them, their sight was returned to them. What a, what a wonderful description of it. And he, quote, just happened to be healing the crippled at that very hour and cleansing flesh-eating diseases and opening deaf ears at that very hour. And he also just happened to be preaching the good news of rescue and forgiveness to impoverished, broken lives. Just happened to be doing all that while John's disciples were walking up. I mean, this is a demonstration of power to bring wonderful weight to the answer. You go from the expectation of the promise to the demonstration of the power to now the authentication of the prophecy. The authentication of the prophecy, verse 22. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Now stop right there. What you have seen and heard. This is official New Testament Terminology designating someone as, a, as an eyewitness, an official eyewitness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses. By the time you get to the end of Acts, Acts chapter 22, verse 15, you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Look, we are not eyewitnesses to Jesus. We are testifiers. We take what's in God's word because it is the word of God breathed out by him, 2 Timothy 3.16, and we become testifiers of what has been written by the eyewitnesses. We are not technically eyewitnesses. Marturo was the, the original word for it from which we get our word martyr. A martyr was a witness. A martyr paid the ultimate price for his witness. A, a martyr, however, that term was used for the eyewitness. And the eyewitness always saw and heard personally what went on. In fact, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3, here's what John says of his eyewitness testimony 
what was from the beginning, that is the beginning of Jesus' arrival, the beginning of his ministry, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. I mean, every sense and experience that you could have in the ministry and life of Jesus, John and the disciples had. What we've seen, what we've heard with our, what we've seen with our own eyes, heard with our own ears, what we beheld, and that is to say, what we witnessed going on in our experience, and what our hands have handled. We touched him. We saw his wounds. We saw his resurrection life. We saw him before then. We watched him go to the cross. We saw him die. The whole deal. What we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, that is, it was revealed, and we have seen and bear witness. There it is. The connection between seeing and hearing and bearing witness. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. He keeps saying it over and over again. What we've seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, beheld and our hands handled. What we've seen, we bear witness to and proclaim to you. What we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is official New Testament designation terminology for an eyewitness. And you see it here. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Jesus commissions John's disciples to be his eyewitnesses to what they've been seeing and hearing over the last hour right in front of them. And notice what Jesus says. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is Jesus drawing the connection between his power and claims and the prophets of the Old Testament. And he picks two of the most challenging passages from the prophet Isaiah. He picked Isaiah 35. I'll just read it to you. Verses 4 to 10. Just listen. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. There's the grace side of it. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the, in the desert and the scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. In other words, the whole topography is going to change in the kingdom. And a highway will be there, a roadway. It'll be called the highway of holiness. And no one unclean will travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion's going to be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. The redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy. Jesus just connects himself and that hour of healing with Isaiah 35 and all of the power displayed through the Messiah. 
And then that last line, notice the poor have the gospel preached to them. He, he chooses Isaiah 61, verse 1, which he had read when he first went to the synagogue as a reader of the Old Testament scriptures. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord had anoint, has anointed me to bring good news to the shattered and the broken. There it is. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the shattered. Look, you remember what Jesus said in the synagogue. This day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And they all got saved and went on into wonderful bliss. No, you remember what happened. They took offense. They took offense. You? From Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, you're, you're just a carpenter's son. You, you, we know your background. We know your credentials. We know, we know you're just a nobody. You are the fulfillment of Isaiah's great prophecy about the Spirit of the Lord anointing his Messiah and that he would be the one preaching salvation and forgiveness of sin to the broken and shattered and guilty, the impoverished. Really? I take offense at that. Jesus, you can't be him. Why? Because you're not acknowledging the spirituality of Israel. You're not acknowledging the righteousness of her leaders. You're not acknowledging that, that you have to come through us. You're not acknowledging that you're our equal, that you're just a man. You're not acknowledging that. And besides, these powerful displays that you do, I assume they are by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. They took offense at him. Wow. So the disciples of John the Baptist were to go and report to him. These healings you just saw and that resurrection that just happened? Go back and tell John. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 35. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 61. You heard me preach Forgiveness of sin to these people, these spiritually impoverished people, the crowds, the masses. I'm not, I'm not going just down to Jerusalem in some exclusive spiritual club full of people who are self-righteous and saying, yes, let's, let's be the new righteous kingdom to the world. I'm not going to them. I'm doing exactly what the Spirit of God anointed the Messiah to do, to preach forgiveness to anyone who is humbled by their sin, broken and shattered by their guilt. And comes in repentance. I'll preach it to anyone. That's what the Messiah does. Go tell John that. There's only one inescapable conclusion. There's only one to be had and ostensibly the disciples would go back and report this to John. That Jesus of Nazareth is the one and only Messiah. How do we know? The works of God. The prophecies that said he would come exactly as he came. All of it was spoken that this is what he would do and he's doing it. Down to the specifics. He can open blind eyes, open deaf ears, cleanse infected flesh, instantly restore crippled limbs and bring dead flesh to life and revive a human soul. He's the sent one by God. 
He must be the one then that offers himself like the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 52 and 53. He's the one that offers himself as a guilt offering. He's the one to whom the stroke was given, yet it was meant for sinners. It was meant for Israel, yet he took it. He's the substitute. For everyone who would turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, all their sins would be forgiven and they would spend eternity with God in holiness and satisfying happiness. And you know what happened. One week before an angry mob nailed him to a cross with false charges, one week before that he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, just exactly as the prophet Zechariah had predicted. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king. And he's just and righteous, and he's endowed with salvation. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, fulfilling prophecy. So the expectation of the promise was there. The demonstration of the power was there. You don't have to do much to connect the dots. And Jesus connected them for John the Baptist. The anticipation of the prophecy was authenticated. So what's the implication? What's the implication of the proof? Verse 23. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Literally, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You know, again, this is such a sweet confirmation from the Lord to John. John, he says, you, you, tell, you disciples tell John this. John, fulfilled and happy and favored of God, is the person who is not offended on account of me, my ministry, my claims. And the implication is who's not offended at the way God does his plan. Look, you want a judgment to come because that's what you preached, but know this, judgment will come. It's just that there's this in-between time where God is doing some wonderful things. Don't be offended at that. Don't be offended at God's plan. He's perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. What about you? Is that how you believe God? Do you go back to the scriptures and affirm that God's promises are real and whether it all works out the way you think it's working out or not? Are you taking offense at God? You take offense at Christ? Are you offended by the claims of Christ? Are you put off by the fact that the testimony of the eyewitnesses is that Jesus could could display this kind of breathtaking power right out in the open for everyone to see and that it was irrefutable. Does that offend you? Does it offend you when Christians celebrate Easter by proclaiming the true reason for this particular Sunday celebration and then next week's celebration and then Good Friday? Does that offend you that we proclaim that the historical Jesus... Jesus of Nazareth, that he alone is the Messiah and Savior of the world. Any present day Jew who's still offended at that message, we proclaim the opposite. We say you'd be blessed and favored by God if you weren't offended by it. 
Or maybe you already know Jesus Christ, but you're still offended by God sometimes because he doesn't work things out the way you had planned. Because he pours out his grace on some sinners and not on others. Because circumstances aren't happening exactly as you thought. Because you read his purposes in the scripture and they're not specific enough for you. And so you get offended because you want more specifics. You demand things from God. Are you offended because Jesus said no one comes to the Father but through me? Does that offend you? Or are you offended because Jesus says that a sinner must repent, turn from his sin and self-worship, doesn't get to bring any good works? Only Jesus works, only his righteousness to cover a sinner's guilt is all that makes you acceptable before God. Does that offend you? Does it offend you that Jesus says he's Lord? He's the ultimate sovereign authority. Jesus himself told the great prophet John the Baptist, favored by God, fulfilled and happy, is the person who takes no offense at me because I am the one. You can connect it to the prophecies. Check it out. Be like Michael Rodelnik, who is professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, who has defended Jesus as Messiah year after year after year after year. Isn't that marvelous? I don't have time to read his biography, but there's a section in his book on the Messianic hope where he says that when he first came to Christ, he went into a high school classroom because there was going to be a meeting to talk about Old Testament prophecy and whether or not it pointed to Jesus. So he went to that meeting and he was supposed to be discussing the issue with a person who took offense at such things. And the guy was real smart. In the book, he calls his name David. He calls him David. And there he sat as a young high school kid with the Old Testament open, the Hebrew Scriptures. And he just kept bringing up prophecy after prophecy after prophecy and saying, this is messianic, this is messianic, this points to a Messiah, this points to a Messiah. And he pointed out passages from the Torah and from the prophets and from the writings, the entire Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, all of it. He kept pointing out Old Testament Scriptures. And this guy, David, could say, well, that's, that's not about the Messiah because of this, because of this, because of this. And as a young high school kid, Michael felt totally embarrassed that he couldn't defend the Messiahship of Jesus. He didn't have the know-how. And it seemed that he had lost the debate. And uh, 32 years later, he met a guy, and they were chatting through a series of providential circumstances. They were chatting, and the, the guy was an older gentleman, and um, maybe about 20 years older than Michael. And he said, hey, uh, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I, I was a Jew. And so they got to talking and found out they went to the same high school. And so Michael asked this gentleman his testimony. He said in his testimony that what got him to thinking about Messianic prophecy was this uh, Bible study that he went to where there was this guy who was really smart and he was refuting why Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah. And he said, all I remember is this young high school kid 
who kept bringing up these prophecies. <laughs> and he said, do you remember who that kid was? Were you there? He said, I was there. I was that kid. <laughs> and the Lord allowed him 30 plus years later to meet a man for whom that debate became the guy's research of Old Testament prophecies and he connected him to Jesus and got saved. You take offense at Christ, check it out. For those of you who don't take offense at Christ, who know Christ, who love Christ, who've been saved, for whom he's your Messiah, the only one living and true God in human flesh, do you think sometimes that people who don't believe and take offense at Christ means that you're not having an impact? Just point them to the Old Testament prophecies, point them to what Jesus did in his earthly ministry and life, and let the Lord work. Father, thank you for this morning, this great testimony of your authentication as Messiah. Thank you for the providential working of those miracles right in front of John's disciples who had not yet put their allegiance with you. Thank you for the sweet tenderness with which you sent a message back to John. And thank you for the implication that when the proofs were given, there was an implication to be drawn and it is that we should never be offended by you for you are the Messiah. You are the promised one of Israel. All the prophecies spoken by the prophets that were fulfilled in your first coming were specific and detailed from your arrival to your ministry, to your death, to your resurrection, to your ascension. All of it, so specific, it's undeniable. And you displayed the works of your Father May we never be offended by you because your plan doesn't fit ours. And Lord, for those today here who've been offended by you because they don't want to call you Lord, they don't want to repent of their sin, I pray that you'd be merciful to them. Even as you were merciful to the poor and spiritually impoverished of that day. Convict sinful, rebellious hearts this morning of their spiritually impoverished condition. Be merciful to them. And we pray for this and petition you for this because of your character and in your name. Amen.